Right, uh, welcome everyone to another fine Middle East Centre event. My name is uh, Toby Dodge and I'm the Director of the Middle East Centre and the Kuwait Chair, but much more importantly, it gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome a friend and a colleague, Filippo uh, Diagini, who is uh, a research fellow at uh, the Middle East Centre and a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow, and much more importantly, he's published an excellent book, which I think you'll all run out and buy straight after this lecture, called Hezbollah, Islamist Politics and International Society, published uh, a couple of years ago by Palgrave Macmillan. Uh, today we're launching uh, a Middle East occasional paper, The Syrian Refugee Crisis in Lebanon, State Fragility and Social Resilience, but much more importantly, and probably of even greater importance, Filippo is going to... Um, expand on that uh, to explain his uh, current research project which is the impact of Syrian refugee crisis on Arab statehood much more widely and I think much more philosophically and comparatively interestingly. Filippo will speak for around 50 minutes and then he is kindly offered to take questions, howls of outrage and debating points from the audience and will end at about 7.30. So without further ado, Filippo. Um, yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you all for being here. And uh, uh, thanks, Toby, for the very kind introduction. Thanks, for, uh, thanks to the Middle East Center for uh, uh, organizing the event, publishing the report. Um, please do pick up copies and, uh, and be in touch if you have comments or uh, you would like to interact uh, uh, in any way regarding the uh, report. Um, what I will uh, try to do uh, is basically... Um, start with uh, a little bit more of a theoretical uh, discussion about the uh, situation of refugees uh, in general and the kind of theoretical debate uh, that has taken place uh, for a long time, at least since the 50s, uh, concerning <coughs> refugees and the state and the international order uh, um, of which we are part to. And then uh, I'll refer more specifically uh, to the case of Lebanon, which is the one that I know uh, better uh, because it's the one I've, for which I carried out uh, um, quite a lot of fieldwork already. And then uh, I'll touch upon the case of Jordan, which is my second uh, um, case study. Uh, and I will not refer to the, my third case study, which is uh, Iraq, which I will be researching uh, hopefully in a year, in a year and a half. Um, well, overall, um, the, this is a research project that uh, spans on three years, basically, and, uh, and basically brings together a comparative analysis of uh, uh, how states, host states, have interacted with Syrian refugee presence within their own borders and try to compare uh, what kind of policies these states have implemented uh, in, each of, in each of these cases. And on the basis of this analysis, then, what I would like to do is basically to critically reassess uh, basically what, what, what it means to be a, an Arab state uh, in a situation, in a regional context in which uh, indeed uh, the whole order seems to be uh, um, fragmenting progressively and, and states in fact are very much uh, under a lot of pressure uh, when they exist, uh, by the way. Um, and so uh, the starting point of pretty much any conversation about uh, refugees uh, in uh, uh, political theory in general uh, is usually Anna Arendt and, the, and her work on totalitarianism uh, and the origins of totalitarianism as the overall uh, project uh, she has been writing about. And what is uh, uh, the, the crucial element of Anna Arendt's uh, discussion of the idea uh, of refugees and statelessness, which are, very, which are two concepts that very much overlap in her views, uh, is uh, the fact that refugees are basically um, 
persons whose rights to uh, have rights have been uh, fundamentally undermined by the fact that they do not belong anymore to a political community that allows them uh, to claim rights and basically to uh, have uh, a capacity to have those rights basically recognized by the community of which they become uh, part as refugees. And, um, and what she says is basically what she criticizes is the idea that, uh, that the nation state and an international order based on national uh, identities has created uh, the idea of the refugees and as a, as a result of this has produced uh, a condition in which some people and a relevant uh, amount of people uh, basically cannot enjoy their fundament fundamental rights uh, and human rights in particular. She says, well, as a matter of fact, human rights do not exist because our nature of humans as such is not acknowledged politically uh, but uh, is only acknowledged only on the basis of belonging to a certain political community. And when that doesn't happen, then we are refugees, we are stateless and therefore we have no rights. And this is obviously a problematic situation. Uh, it is a problematic situation that uh, has then progressively been you know, studied further by uh, um, political theorists, philosophers, but also international relations scholars more recently. Uh, and one uh, case that I would like to mention is that of uh, uh, a, a rather popular philosopher whose name is uh, uh, Giorgio Agamben, uh, who has developed uh, his theory and his philosophy mostly coming from uh, the work, mostly with regard to the work of uh, Arendt on one hand, with whom had uh, uh, an epistolary exchange at some point uh, during his career, and then also with reference to the work of, of Foucault, in particular with concern to uh, biopolitics. Um, Giorgio Agamben is, is, is very difficult to read, and is, is, in fact is an, an awful writer, that's, that's, that's the main explanation for it, but uh, he has a very important <laughs> quote uh, that is constantly mentioned pretty much all over uh, the whole debate about refugees in political theory, uh, which I would like to uh, propose you tonight just as a, a way to uh, try to stimulate a little bit of a, uh, um, possibly a discussion, or at least to sum up what does Agamben and in general uh, the debate, the political theory debate about refugees says uh, about the very concept of refugees. And he says, and I quote, that if refugees represent such a disquieting element in the order of the, modern, of the modern nation state, this is above all because by breaking the continuity between man and citizen, between nativity and nationality, they put, originary fiction, uh, they put the originary fiction of modern sovereignty in crisis. So to put it simply, um, you know, Agamben very much develops on the idea that uh, nation is, is obviously a Latin word uh, and comes from the very uh, uh, concept of being born, uh, uh, nation, you know, to, to be born in, in, in Latin, right? So, so becoming part of a nation through uh, birth basically becomes, you, becomes part, uh, you become a citizen as such and therefore you enjoy rights. Uh, but refugees, according to Agamben, are fundamentally the symbol of the fact that this connection between rights and being born in a certain, being born in a certain political community uh, is, is, is fiction. It's something that is, uh, does not reflect the reality. And as a matter of fact, he proposed uh, the idea that we should all become refugees fundamentally and we should all try to build fundamentally a, uh, international, an international order on the basis of which rights are recognized to uh, any human beings as, as a refugee and not specifically as belonging to a certain uh, political community. It, it is uh, certainly more, more complex, but for, you know, for the sake of this analysis, this, uh, uh, this should be sufficient. And 
The third reference that I would like to propose uh, to contextualize theoretically what I'm going to say uh, later on with regard to Lebanon and Jordan uh, is the work of uh, an LSE scholar, in fact, Amma Haddad, uh, um, um, well, it's not an LSE, it's a scholar who has received uh, her PhD here at the LSE, uh, who has published probably the first real book on, uh, in, in IR theory, in international relations theory, uh, which concerns refugees, which is called, uh, Between Sovereigns. And she fundamentally takes uh, the lessons uh, coming from Arendt and from Agamben and she projects them in the debate about international society, mostly from an English school perspective. Those of you who are taking some kind of uh, IR theory course probably know better what I'm talking about. But quite simply, but basically what she claims in this very important book um, uh, is that refugees are uh, individual that results from the creation of an international order that is based on the nation state. And they remain, uh, let's say, uh, squashed between sovereignties in the sense that, uh, on one hand, there is a state that pushed them out of the borders uh, because that state fails, take Syria in this case, and then on the other end, there is a state that receives them, but after all doesn't receive them and doesn't uh, give them all the rights they should be entitled to uh, uh, because they're refugees and they're not citizens and so on. So they're fundamentally stuck. Uh, into uh, a, a, you know, this friction between states. Uh, and she claims that the idea of the refugee, the very concept of refugees, is constitutive, uh, is mutually constitutive between international society and, uh, um, and indeed being a, being an, an, an national identities. Um, we could go on, you know, there is, a, there is quite, quite a lot of research here. There is a work by Heather Rai, which is very interesting, another one uh, recently published by uh, Phil Orchard. Um, and what is interesting is perhaps the work of Emma Haddad is, uh, is, is, is particularly interesting also because now Emma Haddad actually works for a home office uh, here in the UK and she deals with uh, asylum, for example, and Phil Orchard that works for UNHCR. So there's a lot of overla overlapping between uh, um, the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the practice, the policy making with regard to refugees and uh, the uh, academic developments that are taking place in this debate. The problem is, and this is uh, where um, I would like to draw your attention, uh, is that not only the very existence of refugees uh, is in friction with the sort of international order uh, that we tend to envision globally, uh, but with specific reference to the case of the Middle East, uh, we also have another aspect that we need to take into account, that is the fact that uh, in this region the state has emerged as an institution in very, very problematic terms. I mean, I would claim, and perhaps this is a, a, a rather, you know, something that can be argued about, of course, but the main problem is that within the Middle Eastern context, the idea of the state and its operationalization, uh, especially also uh, in the post-colonial uh, uh, period, has fundamentally failed to become a stable and, sus and sustainable reality. Right, so on one hand, you have the aspect of refugees are problematic within the international order as such. And then on the other hand, you also have the problem that within the Middle Eastern region, uh, not only refugees are problematic and they have this sort of friction between state and nation, but also on the other hand, you have states that are not fully uh, accomplished as institutional uh, systems. You know, take any kind of uh, um, uh, definition of state, like a classical barbarian definition, territory, government, uh, and people, and then monopoly of violence, and you will see that if you try to apply all these parameters pretty much to any Arab state or to, to any Middle Eastern states, you can hardly uh, check all boxes 
clearly, right? So territory is not always there. Uh, the, you know, the identity of the people is always rather blurry. Uh, the government is not really a government. Monopoly of violence, uh, uh, let us not even uh, mention that, right? And again, uh, in this case, we're a little bit luckier, or perhaps not. The debate on the state in the Middle East is uh, vast. Uh, and, you know, I start, for example, with the work of Nazi Ayubi, which I think is crucial, especially the first <laughs> chapter in overstating the Arab state. Uh, but yes, there the claim of Nazi Ayubi uh, was that fundamentally um, in, in the Middle Eastern context, the state uh, and the political process uh, never matured uh, in, a, in a way that you know, politics is because it was an aggregation of demands uh, that was functional to achieving national interest and state interest and so on. But as a matter of fact, uh, the state was always the objective of a process of, you know, of being captured uh, or being resisted by the opposition. So it has always been, uh, it has never, you know, it's never become a, a proper political process according to Ayubi. Uh, other crucial uh, work on the state in the Middle East, Michael Hudson, he basically claims that the state in the Arab world has never had a foundation and a legitimacy that could be fully acknowledged, need, neither, nor by the, uh, uh, by the ruler, but also by the very people that is supposed to be ruled by the state itself. And then, uh, you know, another uh, strand of the debate uh, on the states in the Middle East is uh, obviously, you know, dependency theory, the more Marxist approach is there. There the fundamental claim is that the state in the Middle East has always been uh, somewhat epiphenomenal, if you want, or uh, uh, parasitic of the expansion of a neoliberal capitalist uh, 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 economy uh, that used the Middle Eastern state as, uh, as an instrument to expand, you know, uh, main, mainly economic interests. Uh, and so on, and it's never become an autonomous entity, uh, um, as Michael Mann, for example, defined the state as an autonomous sovereign, and so on. Um, enough theory, I guess, for you, but uh, uh, the point is uh, that in the Middle East, forced, displace forced displacement is a phenomenon that needs to be analyzed not only with awareness that the situation of refugees is intrinsically complex in the current international order, as Arendt, Agambe, Haddad, and many others have pointed out, but also considering that refugees in this context are embedded in a social, political, and economic context in which the state and its institutional foundations are particularly fragile and uncertain. Right? And as a matter of fact, the state in the Middle East is an entity in flux. And now, in the Levant, you know, if we look at the West, West Asia crisis, you know, Iraq, Syria, uh, and all the rest, these this, this dynamics of constant change and instability is, 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 is a, a, a extremely exacerbated. Um, and, the, and the idea for me, and this is the sort of uh, idea I'm working on as a part of the overall project, is that refugees are in fact a constitutive element of this process of state crafting, rather than being elements that are you know, marginalized and somehow alien to the, very, to the very process of creating new states. Instead of, instead of considering them as uh, you know, something that, again, is, uh, is, is, it cannot be included, it cannot be part of a of, you know, classical nation-state identity, instead, uh, they are part, uh, they should become part of this process of, of state crafted and state building uh, in the region. Um, and here I turn to a little bit more of a uh, more pragmatic and uh, um, empirical analysis. You know, historically we know that refugees in the, in the Middle East have been, uh, you know, problematic as well. In the Palestinian case, uh, uh, is, is the most obvious example. Uh, whether you go to Lebanon, to Jordan, to Kuwait, but also in Syria, uh, and so on, Palestinian presence has always uh, uh, been considered or perceived 
um, as, as problematic, destabilizing, exacerbating political uh, 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 diversity, and so on in many respects. Uh, but then if you look better, you will see uh, there is an excellent book by Don Chatti, for example, in this respect. You will see that you know, Palestinians are not the only refugee population of the Middle East, of course. Uh, you could mention the Armenians, you could mention uh, the Kurds, uh, you could mention uh, uh, the Iraqi wave of refugees that came out you know, of the 2003 invasion, for example. Uh, and, um, and obviously the last case uh, is the one of the 20, like, that has begun uh, uh, with, the, with the Syria crisis in 2011, right? Um, what I find remarkable is that, all in all, the Syrian refugee crisis uh, for the host states um, has not created a degree of destabilization and crisis that you most obviously would expect, uh, um, in theory at least. I mean, if you look at the more traditional forms of state, you know, the more Eurocentric views, you will see, you know, basically refugees are undermining the European Union, the European Union as, in, as an institutional system, for example, quite seriously so. Uh, still, uh, in Jordan, in Lebanon, uh, in Iraq, in Turkey, uh, millions of refugees uh, have uh, found a place to stay, in very problematic terms, of course, but as a matter of fact, uh, the degree of, of stability that, this, that characterizes this country, notwithstanding the crisis, is, uh, it is, in my opinion, quite surprising. Why is it so? Um, that is the first question that I will try to address with, uh, with regard to Lebanon and Jordan. And then the second aspect, uh, why is this can, can this kind of resilience continue and, and, and uh, in what terms? And the sort of, you know, it's just a, uh, to, to give you an idea, the, the fundamental, the, the claim, the kind of answer that I would like to uh, give with regard to these questions um, is that uh, the sustainability of this process is only possible, uh, obviously, through the international support and aid that has been promised to this country, but also through internal reform. And then again, I reiterate, refugees have to become part of a process of state crafting rather than being excluded uh, and, uh, uh, and you know, marginalized as part of this process. So Lebanon is an interesting case um, in many respects, of course. Uh, Lebanon is the recipient of 1.4 million refugees. Uh, these are only the ones that are registered with UNHCR, so perhaps the, the figures are even higher. And that means that about 20 to 25% of the Lebanese population uh, has, has increased. Uh, imagine you know, the massive strains in infrastructural terms, you know, electricity, water, garbage collection, and so on. These are all uh, situations that Lebanese are actually, Lebanese and Syrians, of course, they're living uh, in first uh, person um, uh, in the country as a result of this crisis. Um, why do Syrians go to Lebanon? Well, there are two, three rather obvious reasons. The first one is obviously the geographical uh, location of Lebanon, but that would not be sufficient uh, if you consider, for example, Israel is also on the border with Syria to some extent, but obviously Israel is not a destination for refugees, right? Uh, the thing is that the Lebanese-Syrian border is extremely porous. As a matter of fact, it has never been, uh, not even legally, uh, uh, established between the two countries. Syria has established its, uh, its first embassy in Lebanon, I think, in 20, uh, 2008. Uh, uh, just to give you an idea of the degree of recognition, you know, degree of, of recognition that takes place between the two countries. Syria has, uh, uh, with Lebanon, a bilateral treaty, which is called the 
uh, Treaty of Cooperation, Brotherhood and Cooperation, uh, that has been basically imposed to Lebanon by the Syrian regime, uh, and that, is th that gives the possibility, gave at least up until 2014, the possibility to Syrians to cross into Lebanon showing only their ID. But in most of the cases, I've been told, you go to the, you go to the border and you will see there is just that the, the general security officer there is just let people go through with not, uh, with not uh, uh, with not controls and so on. That means, you know, it's a very fluid situation and, and crossing the border is, uh, uh, is rather, uh, is, it was, it has been very easy. The second aspect, uh, uh, well, so why wouldn't you go to Turkey, richer, more stable and so on? Well, there is because Lebanon is, uh, has, a, has, a, has a long history of you know, cultural and language contiguity, of course, which, is, which in Turkey, by the way, is, is a serious issue uh, uh, for, for, for Syrians, by the way, and so on. So that is the uh, rather obvious aspect. And then one important aspect, which is often neglected, uh, is the fact that Lebanon for decades has been the destination of Syrian migrations, mostly in economic terms. Um, Syrians have been the muscles of, of Lebanon constructions and... Uh, uh, an agricultural sector for decades, uh, and here we don't have official figures, uh, but we are talking about something that ranged between 500,000 to 1 million Syrians every year going to Lebanon, either for construction or, or, or agricultural uh, acti you know, economic activity. Um, and that means that basically there is a pattern there, an economic, you know, a robust historical and economic patterns of migrations. With many of the Syrians I talked to in, in Lebanon, when I asked them, why, why are you in Lebanon, why are you specifically here in this camp and not there, many, many replied to me because I had a cousin or an uncle that used to come over here uh, for, for years to uh, pick up the olives or, or something else, uh, and, uh, and he knew the person that owns this land, and this person was kind enough to, uh, give me this, you know, to rent me this land, usually for $50 a month, where I can have my tent uh, or my... Uh, little shelter uh, with my family. So that kind of connection uh, is important, is, uh, is to somehow uh, establish a pattern of migrations. But then think, think well, because Lebanon, after all, is not as obvious as it could seem as a destination. Lebanon has a long history of uh, um, uh, difficult political relations with Syria. Uh, political groups of any kind in Lebanon have uh, a very close connection with Syria. They are actually now active in the Syrian conflict itself. Um, and then Lebanon, third aspect, has never been very efficient in providing services and, uh, and, uh, and you know, it's never been a, 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 the ideal destination to, 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 to receive some kind of protection, as a matter of fact. Nevertheless, uh, it has become uh, the um, recipient of, again, of 1.3, 1.4 uh, millions. Um, how did we get there? Well, this is um, due pretty much to um, three or four factors uh, that I think that needs to be uh, explained. The first one um, is that um, since the beginning of the crisis, the um, Syrian crisis was completely misperceived. Uh, in Lebanon as elsewhere. You know, those in 2011, uh, we read so many articles about Bashar al-Assad days being counted, you know, this is uh, uh, going to last only a few days and so on. And that is also why at least some politicians in Lebanon, especially at the beginning, were expecting the Syrian crisis to be short. And when they've seen Syrians uh, uh, moving into Lebanon, uh, they thought this was something that, was, that would have not lasted for too long, and so they could have managed it properly, uh, and possibly they could have had also some kind of political returns uh, from this situation. Uh, 
The second aspect is that the Syrian crisis in Lebanon has produced uh, a situation of total political paralysis. Um, Lebanon should have had re um, uh, elections in, 2011, in 2011, if I remember correctly. Well, they were uh, actually uh, delayed not once but twice, and the next round should be in 2017, if it will ever take place. Uh, there has been three governments, and, uh, and right now I see the current government being in a lot of troubles with the recent resignation of the Minister of Justice a few days ago. Uh, and every time, uh, you know, each government... Uh, had to be appointed and reformed, you would have like seven or eight months of transition period in which uh, uh, the, you know you should have the, 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 the political groups had to find an agreement on the new government, and those transitions were very long, and, and ministers were only in their caretaking capacity, and therefore could not implement uh, you know serious policies in that respect. Third aspect uh, of political paralysis is obviously the presidential uh, office uh, uh, since May 20. 14, Lebanon does not have uh, a president of the republic, uh, and uh, even now, again, uh, uh, there is no agreement on who should be the next president of the republic. Um, and then, you know, again, I would reiterate, uh, in the past few days we have seen uh, uh, some serious pressure coming, for, especially from the Gulf towards Lebanon, uh, uh, with the resignation of the Minister of Justice, uh, and with the fact that uh, Saudi Arabia has decided to uh, um, uh, to, to suspend uh, its uh, donations for the uh, Lebanese armed forces and so on, and so that is going to be a, an aspect to keep an eye on. Um, the third aspect is that the Syrian presence in Lebanon uh, has become also politically very controversial. Uh, there was no government up until Tamam Salam in, in February 2014 that wanted to tackle directly the Syrian presence in Lebanon. Uh, you read their political statements and you will see uh, that everything is very uh, generic. We will we'll do something. Uh, uh, at the beginning, only the Minister of Social Affairs and, uh, uh, was actually tasked to deal with the situation in collaboration with UNHCR mostly. So basically, the whole problem was delegated uh, to local administration, Minister of Social Affairs, and obviously international organizations. Nothing else. The government fundamentally didn't want to deal with that file. Um, because, because it was extremely controversial. On one hand, you know, if you look at my report, you will see there is a little bit of a description of the kind of political debate uh, that was taking place, but you would have, obviously, uh, the Christian groups that were extremely critical, and they still are extremely critical of Syrian presence in Lebanon, uh, whereas March 14, so the uh, Sunni-led groups, they were fundamentally acquiescent to the uh, uh, presence of Syrians in Lebanon because they sort of see a... Uh, um, perhaps not, not, not officially they wouldn't declare it, but it may see somehow a, a, a political advantage uh, with, uh, with the presence of, of so many uh, uh, Syrians, especially Syrians that they presume they were mostly against Bashar al-Assad regime, and they obviously presume they are uh, mostly Sunnis as well, you know, Lebanon, sectarian country. Uh, so these are all uh, uh, aspects that they take into account. Um, so misperception at the beginning, political paralysis, and the fact that uh, the uh, political uh, debate was uh, uh, very controversial with regard to the Syrian presence, basically did not allow since 2011 up until uh, October 2014 uh, to 
adopt any significant measure towards the Syrian refugee presence. Everything was fundamentally delegated to municipalities and international organizations and to civil society. I remember speaking with uh, uh, someone, you know, a senior officer of UNHCR, and he said, up until 2014 for us was paradise. I've been, you know, this guy is working in Somalia and all over the world, so they said this was the best crisis we could ever deal because the government was completely absent and we could do pretty much whatever we wanted and we were supposed to do. Uh, but then, 2014, things change. Um, why and how? This is, this is a, an interesting aspect I've been asking about. Um, February 2014, finally, Tamam Salam government comes to power and is the first government that in its policy declaration basically makes explicit the fact that it will deal with the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, why? Because they made a deal with, the, uh, with, 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 with Jibara and with the Christian groups uh, and they decided... Uh, that yes, we have to tackle the, uh, the refugee presence in Lebanon. We are already at the point in which the Syrian refugees are one million, which is the second aspect. Uh, one, the one million figure for, for, uh, for, for, for the Lebanese politicians, one, one, uh, one UN officer described it was a big wake-up call. Uh, one day they, 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 they opened the statistics and they found out it was one million Syrians in Lebanon and said, wait, wait a minute, this is unsustainable at this point. Uh, and then the third aspect, uh, that was very shocking for many was that in June 2014 uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad has held presidential elections and those elections were uh, also um, implemented uh, if you want also in Lebanon and in Jordan to some extent uh, through, their embassy, through the uh, Syrian embassy uh, the result of this election was that uh, uh, tens of thousands of, uh, of Syrians actually poured into the street uh, and they went to the Syrian embassy to vote uh, with their passports, but also chanting uh, 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 you know, in support of Assad and in support of the regime. Uh, and that was an enormous surprise for many Lebanese. Uh, the whole Beirut was uh, uh, somehow stuck also because uh, the, apparently the embassy is uh, uh, close to the highway and there were like tens of thousands of Syrians that were walking there and chanting to Assad and the traffic was a disaster and so on. And so at the end of the day there were declarations pretty much uh, all over on TVs and the media that you know, we, can, we, can, we cannot support Syrian presence uh, anymore, not as far as we did so far. But more importantly, there was a point in which uh, the... Sunni political elite realized, probably, uh, that the uh, Syrian presence was not, and Syrian refugees were not the kind of refugees they were hoping uh, to get. They realized, well, wait a minute, this is not exactly the kind of uh, 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 people that uh, we were expecting to have here. And, and if you read the newspapers of the day after this event, you will see uh, that actually March 14, some parts of March 14, for example, they were calling for stripping those refugees that were going to the embassy of their status of refugees, which is now refugees, by the way, is displaced. Uh, but anyway, so basically it was some aggressive, aggressive action towards their presence in Lebanon. So a complete change of perception of the political uh, scenario uh, of, Lebanon, of, of Syrians in Lebanon uh, with regard to this event. Uh, in October, then, uh, um, uh, the, 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 there was the uh, first, I think, uh, international conference dedicated to Syrian refugees in Berlin. Uh, and there, uh, um, apparently, uh, the, the whole diplomatic uh, process went extremely wrong. And uh, Gibran Basil, I think, yes, then foreign minister, uh, uh, was... Uh, um, uh, uh, extremely annoyed by the fact that he was not invited, but Tamam Salam was, and so on. And the kind of policy paper that came out of this conference was 
uh, basically gave uh, a lot of responsibility to Lebanon in dealing with the refugee crisis, whereas the international community, according to a Gibran Basile interpretation, of course, uh, was not taking enough responsibility. Basile went back to Lebanon uh, and spoke about a conspiracy against Lebanese Christians, uh, and the whole uh, thing exploded again, and a few weeks later the uh, Council of Ministers would gather again and approve finally the policy paper, which is basically a paper that basically says uh, that we don't want Syrian refugees anymore. Uh, technically they close the border, even though in fact it's very difficult to close the borders, and then they, make, uh, they, they made the life of refugees in Lebanon very difficult because uh, uh, they increase the cost of visas and the renewal documents and so on. And if you look also at the kind of uh, uh, migration movements that were taking place in the Mediterranean at that point, you will see that uh, 2014 is basically the peak in which many Syrian refugees go to Turkey, and then from Turkey uh, they will try to get to Lesbos and the EU and so on. That's the beginning of the whole situation. So from, from an open-door policy, basically Lebanon transitioned towards a clampdown policy as a result of all these factors uh, uh, coming together. Um, so how did it work what's the kind of analysis that I can propose in this respect well the idea here and I go back to rather, some rather old political science notions but the idea here is that basically Lebanon has gone into this situation because uh, on one hand you have the, uh, uh, the, the typical aspects of state weakness so the fact that politically it was paralyzed, the fact that institutionally it was not capable of, of acting significantly towards the situation, uh, the fact that even economically this, this was an enormous challenge for uh, the whole government to deal with. But on the other hand, it didn't explode. I mean, it, 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 for, for how, how it could have been likely, I think it was a, a reasonable expectation, the fact that the Syrian conflict could have, been, uh, uh, could have spilled over uh, into Lebanon and the Syrian refugee crisis could have been one of the factors basically dragging this conflict into uh, Lebanon, uh, but that didn't happen, and then it's because, that is because on one hand, you have, yes, you have, a you have the weak state, but on the other hand, you have a very strong society too. Uh, think of confessional networks. Uh, think of how uh, the whole uh, um, civil, also the civil society, the Lebanese civil society is uniquely active uh, compared to the rest of the region as well. Uh, and this, and the strong society, and this Lebanese strong society was also supplemented by the capacity of international organization to act relatively freely in this context. Uh, the problem is that in 2014, then, you know, when the clampdown policy was implemented, basically this, this sort of balance between a weak state and a strong society has, has, has broken fundamentally. Uh, and what was a weak state has tried to assert some, some kind of strength with a new policy, uh, and the society pretty much was left where it was, but also uh, there was a degree, you know, a, a, a point of saturation as well that, civil, that, that the Lebanese society was experiencing, began to experience at that point. Uh, I myself, I visited a few municipalities in Lebanon, uh, and, and you could see, I mean, there are, there are villages, uh, yeah, I visited a village in the Bekaa Valley in which there are more Syrians than Lebanese now, for example. And uh, I spoke with the um, mayor there of, of this little village, Marge, and, uh, and, uh, and I had a two-hour conversation with him and another uh, uh, Lebanese, and all, during the whole two hours was constantly interrupted by uh, Syrian women coming in and then asking and saying, uh, you know, I have an enormous pond uh, in front of my tent, can you please call someone to fix it? Uh, uh, or, uh, you know, coming in with the kids half naked with no shoes, uh, can, where can I find something for, for the kids and so on. And so all these kind of things constantly going on. The pressure on the municipalities uh, is enormous. Um, you know, there are some, some anecdotes as well. There, 
this apparently one day a, a big NGO got uh, into this village and delivered uh, um, hundreds of, of foam mattresses, but the uh, the, the, the recipients of this aid cannot, legally can only be the refugees uh, and so these mattresses were given only to the Syrian refugees and the, the mayor the day after I showed up in his office and, and there was a, a long line of, of local autochthonous citizens and the first one comes in and says so where is my free mattress uh, so, so there is also this kind of sense of relative deprivation at the social level that has emerged uh, significantly uh, also at this point um, there are some serious issues, for example, also in terms of uh, uh, um, marriages taking place, uh, and, uh, and that also at a social level apparently has uh, some very destabilizing uh, af aspects. And the result of this uh, is that you know, this, this, the strong society, basically what they do is they also they go to their own MP and say, listen, this is unsustainable at this point. Uh, and so MPs at this point they, become, they convey that kind of complaint and that's also why uh, politically then eventually we, we got to a point in which Lebanon could not uh, live anymore with an open door policy uh, and, and therefore has implemented uh, the, the second uh, aspect um, I'm running out of time and this is a, um, this is a long story I mean I'll be, I'll be happy to take uh, questions of course but uh, uh, I'll move on very briefly with Jordan um, what I find interesting uh, about Jordan, and this, and mine is again a very uh, uh, a relatively superficial view on the subject, because I, I will be travelling there next month, uh, and hopefully I will be able to gather more uh, information about this. Is that um, the Jordanian case is somehow, in many respects, it looks opposite to Lebanon, right? Um, Jordan has been regularly controlling its border, for example, uh, and, uh, and also in this case, obviously, it was uh, uh, an initial perception uh, of the crisis that would have been short, but then uh, they realized it would have been long-term. Um, Syrians were let in, and now we are uh, at, a, at a point in which um, officially UNHCR figures are uh, uh, you know, 630,000 refugees, uh, uh, but then Jordan basically claims there are uh, about double of that, uh, of that, probably 1 million, 1.2 million and so on. Uh, but if you look at the, appro the approach of Jordan to the Syrian refugee crisis, you will see that it's completely different from Lebanon. Generally, you know, strong uh, state-led operation uh, that has the uh, capacity of branding itself as, you know, as, as a reliable international partner, uh, it manages all the aid, it has a flashy website with an authority that uh, is supposed to rule and control the overall uh, uh, situation of refugees. And above all, uh, it has also immediately adopted a camp uh, uh, policy uh, towards, the, towards the Syrians. Uh, that doesn't mean that many Syrians are in camps. In fact, uh, it's only, I think, about uh, uh, 10 to 20% and then the rest is actually uh, in, in informal settlements or private housing and so on. And uh, the reason for the camps, the question of the camps is interesting, especially if you look at the case of, of Lebanon, where camps were an absolute taboo on the basis of the Palestinian uh, experience, of course. Um, the, the reason of the camps is, is relatively interesting and tells you something about the Jordanian approach, because uh, the main concern for the monarchy uh, is basically that of uh, um, maintaining this, the kind of state-society relations, the kind of uh, patron-client relations that the monarchy has with its autochthonous population, especially uh, the original Jordanians ones, because obviously Jordan has also another enormous refugee population that is the Palestinian component, right? Um, and, uh, and that has been problematic because, especially in the northern areas, the ones that obviously are most 
exposed to uh, the flux of refugees from Syria, uh, the autochthonous population started to complain with the uh, political elite about the fact that the Syrian presence was uh, indeed problematic and was uh, you know, creating uh, a, a lack of jobs. Uh, uh, and was creating infrastructural uh, issues. Jordan is uh, uh, the second poorest country in the world uh, for availability of water, for example. Uh, it's fundamentally very poor in natural resources, generally. Uh, and so the camps were a way to basically try to divide uh, and isolate the Syrian presence from uh, the, the tribal loyal uh, 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 groups that are really the, the foundations of, uh, of, of the legitimacy of the monarchy since the foundation of Jordan, then uh, the Palestinian aspects is another aspect. But uh, very briefly, so here you have uh, again a case of, of state resilience towards a massive crisis uh, but instead of being the, 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 the weak state with a strong society, the situation is somehow the other way around. It's a strong state to some extent uh, uh, which is managing the situation and on the other hand, uh, is a society, the autochthonous society, that is entirely dependent on the capacity of the state to, uh, to live up to its own social contract and the expectations that the kind of state uh, has built up. So that means that, yes, uh, it is not easy. You cannot, you cannot find like a simple uh, scheme that basically explains uh, the kind of resilience that these states have been going through uh, in the past years. So it's not only about those variables, weak and strong and so on, of course, uh, but uh, then again I would claim uh, that uh, the capacity to deal with this situation was basically you know, related to the capacity to, uh, to maintain a degree of stability in the kind of, uh, the, the kind of patron-client and state-society relations that have established the continuity of the state uh, in these countries. The problem is uh, that such an enormous presence of, of refugees, and, and we have to and we have to realize in Jordan they did, in Lebanon they didn't, uh, that this is a long-term issue. Uh, in Jordan they have, they have they seem to have accepted this. There are their official declarations that basically acknowledge the fact that Syrian presence is going to last for years. Um, in Lebanon there are, there, I haven't come across anyone that has realized this fully, uh, but. Uh, that means that Syrian presence has to become part of this deal of, this, of, of you know, the patron-client and, and the sort of social contract that, upon which these states are based on. Uh, it is very difficult uh, because, uh, because we go back you know, to, to the questions that, 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 that was posing at the beginning in theoretical terms, because refugee presence questions national identities, uh, uh, because refugees, one, in one way or another, they will always at some point come to a point in which they will claim for their own rights, they already do, uh, and therefore uh, the point is that these host states need to be uh, supported externally in their capacity to deal with this presence, presence, but also internally they have to reform in a way that progressively will be capable of uh, integrating these populations within their own constituencies, within their own populations, and so on. Um, I think, you know, just concluding, because I got to do 45 minutes talking, and it's quite a lot. Um, I think that looking at the Syrian refugee crisis in the region basically once again shows that states in the region are entity in, in, in constant movement and flux uh, and therefore uh, basically refugee presence is not 
a, a, a sideshow, a marginal, a, a collateral effect, uh, but is in fact part of the equation of the equation that needs to be taken into account and, and being fully integrated as part of this process of, of state development in the region. Um, the second aspect uh, is that and the flexibility that states have in this region, so the fact that they are uh, fundamentally changing constantly, that they are not fully developed, if you want, not at least from uh, the point of view of uh, you know very Western-centric uh, and uh, 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 perspective as mine, of course, uh, has basically give them a degree of flexibility that allow them to absorb. Uh, the massive presence of, the, of this population. If you think of it, you know, again, as a contrasting uh, example, uh, anything like that would never be accepted uh, in, you know, the more uh, orthodox kind of states that we, that, that we witness, for example, in the, in, the, in the West, in Europe, and so on, right? So that kind of flexibility, uh, somewhat paradoxically, has become an asset uh, to, to guarantee a capacity of uh, a resilience uh, from the uh, regional crisis. Um, But the capacity to absorb uh, the refugee presence in these states, as the 2014 uh, turning point shows, uh, has a limit, and it's uh, a very clear one. Uh, and that limit has shown basically that implementing new policies that are uh, restrictive towards Syrian refugees' presence also has the effect of then pushing them to Turkey and then to the EU and so on. And the way to deal uh, with that limit, what, I, what, I, what I'm basically trying to say, is that both international aid on one hand, but also domestic reforms, especially concer as concerns education, uh, especially as concerns uh, uh, the provisions of ser fundamental services and so on, the capacity to turn these informal settlements of camps into uh, livable places that looks more like cities, uh, as perhaps Jordan is, uh, is trying to do to some extent, uh, the capacity to build economic processes that basically can uh, turn refugee presence into an economic opportunity. Uh, again, Jordan is one case, uh, especially when we, speak, when we think about these uh, uh, free economic zones uh, models. Uh, well, these aspects are all crucial uh, in, the, in, in building the, the long-term sustainability of the process. And failing to do so, in my opinion, is going to be uh, very dangerous. Uh, it will have definitely the effect of... Um, basically guarantee the continuation of the whole uh, refugee, uh, of, excuse me, of the whole uh, uh, crisis in general, uh, but possibly in the long term also will establish the basis for the beginning of new crises, because uh, failing to integrate and failing to acknowledge the fact that these refugees are part uh, of, this, of, this, of the process of state's formation in this, uh, in this uh, region, basically will have the effect uh, of uh, creating a, a new destitute popula population, uh, affected by statelessness, illiteracy, poverty, marginalization, and therefore we constitute like a, 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 an excellent recruitment pool uh, for those movements that have uh, an interest, at least, uh, in, in challenging overall a, a sustainable regional order in the Middle East. Thank you very much. Thank you. Right, we have plenty of time for questions, uh, and I'll start with you, sir, and then I'll come to you. Yeah. Mr. Chair, you see, with your permission, I'd like to elicit some information. Uh, first of all, what is the confessional distribution in Lebanon? Because you're talking about these refugees which uh, were very happy with the Sadat uh, re-election. Whether uh, the part of the Sunni that there was here that uh, it would be 
imbalance, you see. And this is one question about this. The second is, uh, as you said, that there is not been upheaval. Is it because of the Lebanese civil war, which created a sort of a modus vivendi to live together rather than go to the bad old days of phalanges and the Maronites and the uh, Christians and the uh, Sudanese? So that's, and the third thing I want to ask is about why the refugees have not been accepted by the Gulf state and Saudi Arabia. Why are they pouring in Lebanon, in uh, Jordan and coming to Europe? There is enough capacity on the part of the Gulf state and the Saudi Arabia to accept them. Okay, yeah, take those three. Yeah, um, yes, thanks. Um, well, the, the, the actual data on the confessional uh, composition of Lebanon, the, 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 the rather mysterious, the, the last census of Lebanon was, 19, was in 1936, and then for the rest there are only projections and speculations about it. Uh, uh, and, um, sorry, it was just... And, and so just, 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 to, just, to, just to, but the impact of the confessional um, uh, aspects uh, um, of the confessional balance of Lebanon and the Syrian refugee crisis uh, is obviously significant. The, the greatest majority of the Syrian refugees are obviously Sunni. Uh, then having said that, I wouldn't overstate uh, the religious identity of, of uh, uh, Syrians who comes from a country that is uh, profoundly secularized by decades of Ba'athism, by the way, or Pan-Arabism if you want. Uh, and then again, uh, I would be careful uh, in you know, just getting into that kind of uh, uh, thinking, because that's the kind of mistake that certain political sectors have done uh, in Lebanon uh, uh, in assuming that you know, they could recruit easily on one sect rather than another, and then they find out that as a matter of fact, uh, they, they, these kind of affiliations are not as easy and as, as, as automatic as they thought. Uh, the main concern comes from the Christian community, uh, who claims to be uh, a, a relative majority in Lebanon. Uh, my perception is that it is not, uh, but then if you say so, then they start counting the passports of, of Lebanese in South America, and then the, the, the whole thing becomes uh, rather bizarre. Uh, and then... Uh, um, <coughs> and then... So yeah. No, 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 wait a minute. This is, is a civil war an antidote to uh, get into another civil war? Uh, is that why Lebanon has been uh, resisted? But my sense is, uh, uh, you know, if you think of Yemen, you, you would say that you have a strong counterexample about the fact that no experience in one civil war is not enough to learn uh, from your mistakes. I think, I think uh, is what, is, what has happened is that it, it Syria has fundamentally catalyzed the kind of tensions that uh, were already present in Lebanon and still are present in Lebanon. And there is a tacit, perhaps not so tacit, agreement that it, now if you have a problem in Lebanon, you go and solve it in Syria. Uh, uh, that's why, uh, that's how uh, a degree of stability has been maintained uh, in Lebanon so far. Um, uh, why refugees don't go to the Gulf? Uh, um, yeah, uh, it, it, I can't answer that. Yeah. Can I just no, no, if I'll go to everyone else and then if we've got time I'll come back to you and I suspect we will have time. Sir? Uh, I think the, what you said in the beginning, the state formation, theoretically the area was uh, one state, the Bilalist sons, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq and Iran. And that was through the Skype and Picot agreement in 1917 
that agreement was Dominique border, new border and created the new states out of that below the sons. So the Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq and Iran. And they have destroyed that Kurdish state, Kurdistan, and they distributed that Kurdistan into the So the elements of a state formation, the territory, the population, and uh, even the people. So that was distorted. And that was the, the first refugee was created that time, actually, in 1920, 1920. And, and one of the uh, uh, writer or uh, uh, author of the Balfour Declaration was Sky. And that Balfour, according to that Balfour Declaration, the level, the Palestine was created and given. So there, there lies the first refugee problem of the whole uh, history of this Arab world, the, what is happening. Now, this is the one, and that is, I think, that is what you were saying, the state formations, hmm. that is the cause of the... I need to move it towards a question. No, I am coming to the question. The question now, the, uh, why this civil war and also the refugee problem came, the recent problem. That it was the mishandling by the international community. When the uh, day started in 2010 for the uh, for removal, removal of the, the regime change of the Assad Hussein, Basar al-Assad, the international community was thinking and they said that yes, we will go to uh, remove the uh, Assad. But later on, Later on, they make an agreement with the Iran, with the nuclear, the past. I still haven't had a question. No. The, Please. I still, still, because of that now, they, the refugee situations, initially the refugee situations was within the neighboring countries. They had not gone to the Euro, at the borders of the Euro. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, that, that uh, why this situation in the beginning, in the 2011 or 12, why they have not tackled that yeah, refugee yeah, okay. I got, I got, I got the point. comes to the Euro. I okay. got the point. I think, you know, uh, rather briefly, so it sucks because the original scene of the overall uh, regional situation, I, 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 don't, I don't think so, no. I mean, Sykes-Picot's office has been a very controversial uh, historical phase, of course, and, and with plenty uh, of, of problems and, uh, and so on. But uh, as a matter of fact, then uh, the state formation process has, has been going on for, for decades afterwards, and, uh, and the resilience of those borders that have been established uh, at that point uh, have lasted uh, and have been confirmed by the very political leaders that for decades have ruled over those countries. Whenever they try to establish uh, you know, a, a united Arab Republic in Syria and Egypt and so on, the whole thing collapsed uh, in a few months, right? Uh, so, you know, maybe the solution one day will be a unified Arab region uh, and so on, but I don't see that as, as a realistic uh, option right now. Um, and then the, the, the second aspect, so why, why, why did it go, why they stayed in the region and did they go to Europe, if I got your question right? Uh, you know, this, this may be not, not as banal as you think, but as a matter of fact, the uh, Lebanese, sorry, the Syrians that are in Lebanon, Iraq, uh, so, uh, yeah, Iraq, Turkey, and Jordan, the one I talked to, for example, they all want to go back to Syria very soon. 
Uh, and the advantage of Lebanon, for example, is that for a long time they could travel back and forth uh, quite easily, uh, and they could go check whether their house was still there, they could check their property, they could, uh, they could use the Syrian health system, which is way cheaper than the Lebanese one, and so on. Uh, so those are all things that keep uh, at, at least part of the population, refugee population close to Syria. Uh, um, the problem is, uh, and, 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 and that's also why I think you know, we, should, we, we, we need to deal with those refugees there uh, as, as part of those contexts, in particular, because they're not very keen uh, to go anywhere else. And then, you know, also culturally, I mean, uh, uh, there are many refugees I talked to, they, they did not even have a passport, they never traveled out of Syria. So as a matter of fact, going even farther or, you know, dealing with, you know, going to Europe, the U.S. or Canada was absolutely uh, out of their... Uh, perspectives and options, as a matter of fact. So, yeah, that's, that's my okay. Right, uh, there's two questions there. I'll take uh, the, the, uh, that question first, and then you. Okay. Yeah, I think the main thing would be uh, to give Syrians access to the job market uh, and then to um, uh, obviously try to potentiate as much as possible the education system so that they can uh, guarantee access to schools and educations to refugees. Uh, in Turkey it's a big issue because uh, most of education is done in Turkish uh, and Syrians do not speak Turkish and they also want to get an Arab education, by the way, uh, because they would not be able to go back easily to, with a Turkish education, by the way. Um, so yes, those are, those are the main things. Uh, guaranteeing livelihood and a decent standard of living, that's, uh, that's, those are the main aspects. Um, they, they, need, they need obviously a, a significant economic support for that, and, uh, and my, my hope is that the international community will be able to provide that. That's, uh, that's my best take. And also giving them a, a legal status that is a little bit more than the kind of status of guests or uh, uh, displaced or whatever kind of nomenclature you, uh, you come across uh, is, is crucial uh, to define uh, their identity and then hopefully at some point uh, give them you know, documents, uh, residence permits and so on in a longer term perspective. That's all very rational but it's highly unlikely to happen, isn't it? I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's not... I mean, in Jordan, uh, the access to work, for example, may not be so uh, uh, impossible in the sense that Jordan, again, is, is, is very uh, poor in natural resources. So one of its main uh, uh, economic uh, uh, resources is actually labor. And now having, like, uh, uh, you know, say one million more uh, potential workers, uh, as I mean, if it's managed economically uh, uh, in, in a sensible way, it could be... Uh, it is apparently, you know, it's, there, there are economic studies that basically say this, this, that is feasible to some extent. And uh, the other thing is that uh, basically building into uh, the crisis also development of opportunity for, for the host states. Uh, um, so the European, you know, selling it, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development uh, has a deal with Jordan uh, to build new, uh, especially water infrastructure. Uh, and that brings, you know, on one hand development uh, at infrastructure level for Jordan, but on the other hand is also an employment opportunity uh, for uh, the local population, uh, therefore also the Syrians. Um, then there is the role of the private sector. Uh, there is, you know, there are these uh, free economic zones that, for example, are being currently used in, uh, in Egypt, not for the Syrians in particular, but, uh, you know, these are zones that I know in terms, in, in, in terms of trade unions and, and worker rights are highly 
uh, criticizable, and I would agree partly with that. Uh, but yes, that means that you know some kind of uh, uh, um, label could be used, uh, and therefore you know indeed, indeed converting uh, refugee presence as a development opportunity, uh, at least in, in theory, is possible. I wouldn't say it's so unlikely. Okay. Yes. I think you've kind of answered my question, but um, if I might just comment on what you just said, obviously in the Syrian conference, donor conference that was held in London uh, two weeks ago, there was a failure. The governments, the, the British government's targets were to get commitments and work permits in Lebanon and Jordan, and they failed. Hmm. So maybe your pragmatism isn't quite isn't quite placed. I, I had the impression that you were saying that the, the countries should absorb these refugees, but I think you just said that they should give them some legitimacy, and that was going to be my question. And might I just say, from the point of view of NGOs who are working very hard on some of these issues and trying to work out policy as well as you know, pragmatic support, I think I would like to thank you for the, for the theoretical framework, and I would ask you not to underestimate the potential influence that that discussion could have mm. in the discussion about how to deal with refugees, actually. We are all really, really struggling for the advocacy framework on which to, on which to help refugees, and this idea that they fall somewhere because a nation state fails, I think, is very important. So thank you for that. Mm. Sir? Yes, bearing in mind the Palestinian refugee experience, that they've been in camps since 48, that they're still not citizens in their countries. They, have, they were born, their fathers were born, and probably their grandparents were born, in, and all the problems that it caused. Why should this time be any better? Hmm. You, you, you're, speaking, uh, you're speaking about Lebanon in particular, or it's both Lebanon and Jordan, it's, it's, I guess. Mm. I guess it applies to both, after all. Yeah. Uh, what, uh, the problems that were in Lebanon uh, and led to the war or whatever, but I don't know if it would apply also in Jordan. Mm. Um, well, well, sadly enough, I mean, it's not, it's not necessarily not necessarily it's going to be different. I'm afraid. I mean, I'm not historically historically I wouldn't be historically determinist in that sense. I mean, there there is a risk uh, that uh, the politicization of Syrians may exacerbate political tensions uh, uh, in all countries. That that is something I was warning uh, uh, about uh, at the end. Um, it, it, I think it can be different uh, because um, again. Uh, especially in Jordan, if you think of it, uh, and, and this is another element of comparison that I'm trying to work on, but Lebanon is a country and a state that has basically developed through a process of frag social fragmentation. You know, initially it should have been Christian, that included the Sunnis, but then these communities you know, progressively divided and politicized and then they established confessionalism as, as a system to manage that kind of diversity. Jordan and the country is a, is, is a state that, that came about through a process of integration of different groups. So the autochthonous tribes, the Palestinians, and then uh, recently I was at an excellent talk by the, the, the mayor of Amman, for example, and he was just mentioning Amman, there are Sudanese, there are Kuwaitis, there is a very diverse society. Uh, so it has, it has turned out to be a little bit, you know, sort of kind of post-national uh, 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 
society to some extent, you know, as this determines uh, uh, by Catherine Seeking, uh, that, that has a capacity, at least has shown a potential uh, of integration uh, and going beyond uh, the simple idea of uh, the simple uh, equation of a nation as being born in a place and in a, in a certain political community. Um, it, it is by exper you know, ex experimenting with that pattern and, and, uh, and, and uh, uh, try to um, you know, shape the political process in that direction that I think that the situation may be different from uh, the Palestinian case. Uh, then the Palestinian case has, has its own peculiarities in many respects and its own uh, historical characteristics. So but that, I guess, is another chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, uh, um, I have uh, two comments, maybe uh, a question. I think the first comment uh, uh, from, uh, from my point of view uh, within your framework is maybe uh, uh, rather suggestion or a question whether we should, at least in the case of Lebanon, um, dissociate between the political class and the bureaucracy. Mm. Because when we talk yeah. about state, we tend to amalgamate all these all these issues. And and frankly, I mean, if you look at the performance of Lebanon um, uh, over uh, over the ten years, and we have a, have a lot of comments because this paralysis that you talked about. Uh, the Bishop Shatter and the lack of debate, and I speak also in front of experts who know Lebanon quite well. Uh, this has been ongoing even before uh, the, uh, the, the, the Syrian refugee crisis. So this, uh, these are secular trends, these are structural problems of, of, of the Lebanese sort of uh, um, uh, uh, landscape. But, but my point again is, is the importance of dissociating political class because, uh, and the bureaucracy, because it's the politic, it's a corrupt, political class, which uh, uh, we're not going to go into the discussion, which is capturing the state and actually undermining its ability to perform. Because if we go back to previous periods of stress in Lebanese uh, history, including one internally, I mean, which dealt with refugees in 2006 when, when there was the Israeli attacks on southern Lebanon, there was around a, a half a million internally displaced. And the society, the state, was able to some extent, not perfectly, to deal with it. But it was better performing because at that time there was some better coherence, uh, uh, at least within the different faction of the Lebanese. Uh, what happened is that, is that the, this, this, this semblance of coherence that was ex uh, existing is, is weakening because of sort of the sort of uh, the impoverishment of the of the state because there was there is no more and seeking activity from which the political class can can actually benefit and second of course the geopolitical tension is is hindering any any sort mm. of this some law of coherence mm. whereas the bureaucracy for example actually mm. it was able I mean, I mean, again, let's, let's just think about the odds that they are dealing with. The bureaucracy, in my view, I, I'm an economist looking at, at this country, has dealt fairly well, uh, given the, the fact that there's no budget for the last 10 years, that institutions are networking. So the bureaucracy, I think, is performing better. So maybe, maybe we should consider that. But the second also... When, when you speak about bureaucracy, who, who are you referring to exactly? I mean, what kind I, of offices do you have in mind? I, uh, I mean, I mean uh, uh, the sort of uh, uh, the, the soldiers who go and do their jobs, uh, the, the people who, uh, who still are su su suggesting uh, approaches to deal with donors. Okay, you may have uh, a minister of foreign affairs that, that doesn't care how to make the case for Lebanon in terms of... It in front of the international community because he has his own personal agenda at stake and his relation with Hezbollah because he's an honest but, but eventually the whole bureaucracy down below him is actually putting forward 
extremely important uh, important mm. uh, idea. So that's what I mean by the ability to come up with proposals and solutions that 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 the political elite is actually sort of filtering uh, 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 in order to maintain its capture of the state yeah. in one way or another. And again, I'm, 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 maybe if you would want to care to comment on this on this point. And the second point that I want to actually, but is also, I mean, why do we tend uh, not to also bring in uh, sort of uh, the, the moral responsibility of the international community, which is, I mean, of course they are uh, um, uh, helping, I mean, uh, and helping in, 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 in different aid formats, but at the end of the day, one explanation why maybe Jordan or Lebanon may want to limit uh, take up, the, the take up of, of refugees is because basically, at some point, that was maybe the only way to pressure the international community, including by reversing refugee flow, to uh, uh, to start uh, sort of putting more pressure on the political process in Syria. And I think, I mean, we can debate that. We only <laughs> felt that uh, there was increasing tension and and, and sort of uh, uh, urgency to uh, to start uh, pushing the political solution. Partly also because of these sort of refugees crisis dying on the shore, uh, shore of Europe and somewhere else. So, so the question is, where do you put the moral responsibility of, 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 um, uh, of the international community in escalating and, <coughs> in, uh, and in actually weakening indirectly the capacity of the state to take care of the refugees properly? Yeah, no, I mean, on the first point, I, 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 I take it as a comment, and I reflect upon it. I made a few notes. It's uh, it's interesting. They, you know, again going back to Nazi Ayubi, I think you were referring to this. He, he emphasizes a lot the role of bureaucracy in the in the uh, in the whole uh, his in the whole analysis of the Arab state. Um, so perhaps there, you know, it uh, definitely can work more on that. Um, you know, the moral responsibility of, of, of the international community, I think you had two points. One on the possible manipulation of of uh, uh, refugees. Uh, migration dynamics as uh, as an indirect element of pressure in, in, uh, in on the crisis, and then the other one on whether actually uh, inter international you know powers, states, Western states, fundamentally uh, provide enough uh, aid and support for the for the crisis itself. Uh, on the first point, uh, my sense is that uh, um, uh, Lebanon and Jordan do not have very much that kind of that strategic power to push refugees uh, in one place or another uh, for, for the very geographical nature of their uh, uh, location to some, expect, to some extent at least. Um, and, uh, uh, but Turkey does. Uh, and, uh, and, um, and, and yes, it's perhaps not a coincidence that Turkey is the one that has uh, uh, for, for you know, has received you know the three the, the famous three billion offer, uh, which we don't really know exactly what it's about, by the way, and uh, and and so on. And then, interestingly, perhaps you know Lebanon and Turkey, they are, uh, you know, one thing that, that was um, fascinated to find out is that there is a lot of emphasis on on, on people smuggling, and rightly so, for heaven's sake, of course. Uh, uh, but if you if you look online, you will find that actually there are Turkish ferries that connected Tartus and uh, and Tripoli, Lebanon, for the past five to six years, uh, uh, and they transported uh, tens of thousands of Syrians. And you know, consider that in Tripoli there is a bus that travels directly to Raqqa and and back and forth and so on. So actually, that that kind of connection is is very fluid and it's very easy. Now to go to Turkey, Syrians need a visa, but they only need to pay for it. By the way, it's not very selective in that sense. And so, so yes, those are all you know fluxes and dynamics that it could be uh, uh, governed better. 
definitely. And uh, um, and whether you know, it's, I'm all for the whole uh, for all international support, obviously, for to to, to manage the crisis and uh, to to. Uh, it has to be done uh, well, of course. It has to be done also with awareness and the, caution, and the consciousness that you know, big development project. You know, someone speak about Marshall plans and so on uh, in the Middle East have never worked. Uh, you know, if you go to downtown Beirut, uh, you know this. Uh, it, it, we, we, you find it very easy. So it has to be done at the micro level. It has to be done well, uh, uh, and, uh, and obviously that's. Uh, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's my thoughts. Really. Yeah. I've got two questions. That first, and then. Uh <coughs> I am Emily, I'm a student doing a Masters in IRS and I enjoyed the conceptual framework you provided for us and I just thought it made me think that I'd quite like to hear your perspective as to what extent you can say that the Arab states can be seen to have a fundamentally different <coughs> constitutive and functional nature to the conventional Westphalian one mm. and whether it's, <laughs> it can almost be seen as a parallel or different form of statehood and whether you think it is possible that it will progress towards an orthodox type one, as you've kind of made that distinction. I thought it would be nice to hear you elaborate on that. Yeah, it is a very difficult question, I must say. Uh, um, I think the Westphalian model, I mean, apart from the fact historical, was never really there. It does not even work anymore in the, in the Western uh, context. Uh, and, and then again, you know, refugees are the, the most, the starkest example about the fact that, that it doesn't work and, it can, it, and we need to move uh, beyond that kind of uh, aspects. Whether, whether it can be applied and to what extent to the Arab context and, uh, you know, to the regional uh, context, uh, well, I'm not the kind of uh, student that uh, dismisses the, the, the importance of the state uh, uh, superficially, you know, as you know, with the whole globalization discourse and so on. Uh, so, as a matter of fact, I still think that statehood and, and states are the fundamental tools for the well-being of citizens and, and non-citizens, of course. Uh, uh, and therefore, I would, uh, uh, I would, uh, I would uh, support the view that uh, what we need to work for is uh, uh, the definition of proper territoriality, the uh, working sovereignties, uh, and, uh, and, and acknowledgement you know, of proper uh, rights and constitutional process that guarantees those rights uh, for each of these states. Um, on the other hand, uh, I mean, whether there is a, 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 you know, a Lebanese national identity or a Syrian national identity uh, and so on, I think it's something that we will need, uh, we will probably find out uh, uh, in the next uh, uh, years, I guess, and uh, it's going to be a painful process. There is a, um, uh, a, a very good, uh, you know, again, I'm uh, referring to Agamben, there's a very good book that has been recently translated in English uh, by Agamben on, on civil war. It's called Stasis, uh, in which he basically makes a, 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 writes a whole commentary of uh, Hobbes' uh, analysis of civil war and his fundamental claim that the role of a civil war is basically that of deconstructing a national identity, uh, bringing it apart, and then a civil war only ends when there is, agree there is an agreement about a new identity, a new national identity. That's, uh, you know, to put it very simply. Uh, so I guess it's too early to answer that question right now. I've got two other questions, but I just want to jump in here on that question, which was, I agree, very good. Now, I, like you, am a big fan of Ayubi, but his definition of the state linked to a kind of Gramscian notion of hegemony yeah. means that all states outside Europe that haven't achieved hegemony, so all post-colonial states, are ultimately illegitimate and fragile. So I wonder how that far gets us. And of course, when I was li listening to your question, I thought there's an argument to be had between Ayubi and uh, Michael Barnett, for example. Now, Barnett would argue quite 
straightforwardly that um, after 73, 74, I think, um, after the defeats, that the, 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 the Middle Eastern state moved towards some form of Westphalian understanding and that you have an institutional, ideological, geographic anchoring of state identity. And of course, if I were then reaching out to, I guess, what you were referring to, looking at the first waves of, uh, of, of uh, refugees, Palestinians, 48, 67, 73, creating profoundly violent crises in Jordan and in Lebanon, or at least contributing to the Lebanese Civil War, and Black September is what I had in mind in Jordan. We now see these massive waves uh, with no violent crisis, not yet, and it's been four years. So I, I'm wondering if this actually is a testament <coughs> to the strength of all the, or the Middle Eastern states that, that have received the outflow of the two failed states, mm. not, not a weakness. Mm. Uh, yeah, um, the, the, yes, the bottom line of Ayubi is that basically Arab states are not fully Arab states because they have a political elite that established a cultural hegemony and that cultural hegemony then established a national identity uh, and so on. And, uh, um, I mean, well, do you mean do you mean you're critical of this view, or you don't? You don't, you I don't, just don't see think it gets us very far. Yeah, I mean, it's and 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 Ayubi's book itself, I mean, somehow shows that because the, the first chapters are very good, and then the more you read, and it becomes more of an historical account, sometimes a rather uh, controversial one, I think. So, um, yeah, to some extent, I guess, I guess, I guess you're right. I mean, it's the, the possibility that after all, there is no cultural cohesiveness in political terms that then establish. Uh, a, a, the foundation you know, of legitimacy for a state is, uh, is, uh, is, 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 uh, uh, is only relatively persuasive, I guess, <coughs> yes. Um, and, we, you know, with regard to the idea of Barnett and the fact that uh, there, is, you know, there was, at least at that point, a, a sort of Westphalian model uh, uh, spreading and diffusing in, in the... Uh, in the regional context, uh, I mean, it, it, those those are. If, if for any country you go to, uh, Lebanon, Jordan, and so on, there has always been a phase in which there was the uh, the whole campaign about uh, Lebanon Awalan, Urdun Awalan, and so on. So Lebanon first, Jordan first, and so on. So that was like the phase in which politically and culturally, basically, the state was trying to promote a, a localized national identity. Um, Will it work or will it not? And then, you know, we go back to the, to the question about Sykes-Picot. The fact is that up until now it has lasted, but it doesn't seem to come to a, ever to come to a point in which it matures in, in a form of accomplished statehood. Uh, um, then what it means to become an accomplished state also, I, I agree, might be a rather con controversial uh, idea. And I, I, li I, you know, it's, I like your last point, because then again it allows me to reiterate what, what, I, thought, what, what I hope it was uh, at least the, the core element of my uh, work in progress analysis, by the way. So, so that the, the fact that the, these countries have managed Syrian presence uh, with maintaining a degree of stability, is there a, an indicator of, of state resilience about the fact that actually these states are, are more uh, uh, resilient and, and capable than we expected? My, my explanation is that perhaps this applies to some extent to the Jordanian case in which the state has had, had in fact a, like a primary role in, in managing that process and, and, and managing the crisis itself. Uh, whereas in the Lebanese case, what has somehow guaranteed a degree of stability uh, is that instead of uh, uh, going, you know, adopting immediately a policy such as the one that was implemented by, uh, because uh, it, in, in 2014, mainly because of the pressure coming from Basile and, and so on, uh, uh, instead of adopting that, it has remained relatively flexible and basically has absorbed the impact. There's been a, a buffering 
context instead of being something that has bounced back uh, Syrians to uh, Syria and so on. So, so again, it's not, it's not necessarily a capacity to to react, but rather, uh, you know, the very fact that you that you're not entirely developed basically makes you a little bit more flexible and 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 react, uh, not as reactive to the Syrian presence, I guess. And there's a joke to be made about Jordan being post-national with a royal family from next door and a, an English mother. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't want to make that right. Yeah, go on. Yes. Uh, first of all, thank you for the event and everything. I have two questions. Uh, one, given that in Lebanon that they have not recognized refugees as refugees and the whole terminology with them being displaced mm. and mm. the fact that they have recognized that this is a long-term issue, do you see potential realistically in state-led policies in giving this refugees their rights socially and mm. do you see this mm. happening anytime? Mm. The other thing with the idea of opening the job market in Lebanon to the Syrians, even before the Syrian crisis in Lebanon, we had the whole issue that Syrians are taking the jobs of the Lebanese yeah. and they accept yeah. wages that are lower than the Lebanese and the Lebanese mm. are losing job, jobs. So how do you see this happening in Lebanon right now with opening up the job market for the millions of refugees yeah. without this having such a negative <coughs> influence on the, the Lebanese job market to start with and the unemployment rate? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a very two, very good questions. I mean, in Lebanon, uh, Tautin, you know, the the naturalization of foreign citizens is absolutely taboo, and and uh, so it's out of the question for uh, for Syrians, definitely, as it has always been out of the question for the Palestinians. Uh, uh, and uh, they, they are they're, they're, again, you know, for in Lebanon, they haven't. Uh, um, there, there is still no perception about the fact that the Syrian refugee crisis is a long-term one, so there is no, there is no such conversation taking place. But the fact that they can have, you know, more social uh, uh, rights and, and right to work and so on uh, uh, is something that, at least to some extent, hopefully, uh, will be accepted in the long term. It depends on the political side you're talking to. Uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, someone from the Minister of Interior was here to take part to the uh, London conference, and and he was uh, he belongs to the March 14 uh, camp, and he was somehow you know prospecting the possibility that uh, Syrians could work in Lebanon, uh, and they could enjoy a degree of of, of integration, social and economic and political, well maybe not political but uh, civil integration at least. Um, and on whether they can be absorbed in the job market, you know, I'll go back to the very important aspect that I was emphasizing at the beginning, and there is a very good book by uh, John Shalcraft on the subject. Uh, uh, but Syrians has always been a, a, an important element of Lebanese economy, uh, at least for the labor-intensive uh, sectors, uh, to the point that when the general security officers closed the border as a consequence of the 2014 policy, uh, there were actually articles in newspapers in Lebanon that were reporting that the society of, uh, you know, the agricultural society of Lebanon and the construction society of Lebanon uh, were actually complaining with the Ministry of Interiors about the fact that they couldn't find workers uh, to uh, to keep going with their agricultural work and their uh, uh, construction works in the in Lebanon and so on. So, as a matter of fact, if you look uh, also in my report, there is a small table. Uh, far from being sufficient to be persuasive, but uh, the, the Syrian working force and the Lebanese economy, they complement each other in decent ways. Uh, so the possibility to integrate them in, in terms of job market is, is, in my opinion, realistic. And, and speaking also with, uh, having seen at least Jordanians uh, speaking about the subject, they seem, they seem to uh, envision the possibility of integrating, at least in, in economic terms, a Syrian presence then. Again, it's also it's also very much depends on the kind of foreign investment that you get and so on. So there's uh, many parameters. So yeah.
Thank you. Um, I have a question, but first I just wanted to say, for anyone interested in the academic literature around statehood, I've been studying Germany for the last couple of years, and there's an interesting school of thought uh, called Governance in Areas of Limited Statehood. It doesn't get, a very, doesn't get very much attention in the UK. And there's a, um, an academic called Thomas Rissett, who leads that centre yeah. at uh, Leiden University in Berlin. And it, it's worth having a look at for a sort of pragmatic attitude towards um, states, non-Westphalian, non-European states. My question relates to something you said earlier, which was um, that we shouldn't over-exaggerate the religious identities of mm. Syrian refugees who have lived in a secularised and Ba'athist uh, Syria for several decades. Um, that's interesting with respect to Syrian refugees because inside the country, um, the population certainly seems increasingly divided by religious and ethnic identities, if not just by distrust and mistrust, then by hatred uh, between the between Sunni communities and Shia communities, also with Kurds, even between Kurds and Christians, and we've seen clashes between them in uh, Shia and Hasidic province. So I wonder whether you think there is a difference, therefore, in how refugee communities, Syrian refugee communities see themselves, and Syrians within the country. And I wonder what you think the consequences for that might be for a Syrian political settlement when eventually, maybe, sometime that happens. Because, as things stand at the moment, the emphasis is on representation of the uh, uh, factions facing <coughs> inside Syria when at that political settlement, and not on representation of a potentially secular refugee community and what might be the imbalances, therefore, in the settlement that comes about. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I know Thomas Rees's work for uh, for the constructivist uh, international norms. I didn't know about uh, limited statehood. I mean, so thanks for that. Um, and uh, about religious identity, uh, it's 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 very complex. But um, see, if I say, if I understand your question, is that you are basically asking, will will there actually be a, a a possibility for secular Syrians to have a, a, a political uh, representation in, in a post-conflict uh, situation ever, considering that the, the, the conflict that is raging now in Syria is very much along religious line, apparently at least, I would say. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't know. I mean, my sense is that uh, also representing the Syrian civil war along only along uh, a religious line is is, 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 is is a misrepresentation of, of what, what the conflict is in fact. The sectarian divide as being uh, a powerful uh, um, uh, discourse that uh, mostly regional powers have used uh, and then projected onto the conflict to then manipulate uh, its uh, uh, its dynamics, uh, um, mostly from outside. And having said that, I mean, it's true that the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria has suffered uh, uh, enormous uh, violence from the regime, so there has always been also an internal, an internal conflictual domestic, uh, uh, conflictual dynamic uh, as well uh, that belongs to the conflict. Uh, but yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that necessarily uh, we will see, you know, on one hand uh, a Sunni Syria and then an, Alawi, an uh, Alawi Syria coming out of this process and so on. Not necessarily so, I guess. And uh, um, 
Yeah, I don't, I don't have a clear idea exactly about where this conflict is going, but my sense is that no one really does anyway. Right. If there are no more questions, I promised to uh, let, let you have the final word before Filippo wraps up. Yes, I think I was mentioning about this, you uh, uh, mentioned about confessional. You see the capture of state by the political class. One of the reasons it started with Amal and then Hezbollah, you see, because they thought the Shias were not getting the resources they deserve, you see. And that was the rise and the final question is that this is the barbarian in the civil society of Lebanon. Do you agree with that? So if, so if the socioeconomic marginalization exactly. as a factor of radicalization yes. is that, is that yeah. uh, it, it is one factor, but it's not, it's not a sufficient cause for, uh, for, uh, for more social mobilizations. Uh, you know, so I remember a friend of mine once gave me a very good example. If, if socioeconomic marginalization was sufficient to cause social mobilizations, then uh, the Roma and the Sinti in Europe would be possibly the most active terrorists we would ever witness in this uh, region. Uh, ever for the past decades, right? So, uh, no, it's not, it's not sufficient. Uh, uh, it might be uh, necessary to some extent, but it's not a sufficient uh, element uh, for radicalization or, or social mobilization, I would say. Excellent. I think that's a great point to end on. Um, before we thank our speaker, I want to draw your attention to our next event, uh, 6.45 on Tuesday, the 1st of March. Andrew Hammond from Oxford University is discussing Salafism and the way it's found its way from the Arabic and Saudi sphere into Turkey, into, into the Turkish language. But more importantly, I think Filippo has given us an excellent talk, a, a brilliant debate, so I thank him and I also thank you for turning out on a, a cold uh, February night. So thank everyone. Thank you very much. <laughs>